what after 5 p.m. your time probably it's after 6 p.m. my after time <laughs> your time so hang in there with us uh, we have a great group Don't of folks so. uh, who are uh, online here um, and uh, just to introduce Angelica who is a senior researcher at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology um, to a little background is that uh, Angelica um, got her diploma master's degree in agricultural biotechnology from Bio. the university. What's that? <laughs> no, not biotechnology, agriculture biotechnology. Tech, agricultural technology <laughs> <laughs> at the University of Hohenheim in uh, Stuttgart. And then she actually came to NC State uh, and worked with uh, George Kennedy on uh, looking at predation on Colorado potato beetles in Eastern North Carolina. Um, as impacted, I guess, by insecticides by and by Bt. spraying of Bt, Bacillus thuringiensis, uh, in, in this case. Um, this is definitely prior to the uh, commercialization of Bt crops. And I was uh, lucky to be on her thesis committee at that time. Well, she got her degree uh, in 1994, and it looks like immediately went off uh, to the Swiss Federal research station for agroecology and agriculture um, in Zurich. And uh, she stayed there until 1999 and assumed her uh, current position in the year 2000. And she has done uh, research uh, on a lot of different areas of biotechnology, agricultural uh, biotechnology. Uh, but really, a, I, I could say a primary focus on biodiversity and non-target uh, non effects of some of these crops, but also at the policy level and looking at the socioeconomic impacts of these crops. Um, and she's been on uh, many different committees um, within, uh, especially within the EU, but also in Africa, and I'm sure she'll tell us more about that. And she's published uh, numbers of papers. And I, I just point out one that was she did with David Andau that was published in Bioscience that's been cited about 300 times. So she's definitely, she may not even know this, right? <laughs> that's what happens when you look up somebody's CV. <laughs> well, anyway, she's been doing uh, a lot uh, in this area. And um, I would just like to let her take it from here. And I'm sure we'll have an interesting presentation and discussion. Thank you, Angelica. Thank you very much, Fred. It's really good to be back on campus, <laughs> even if it is only virtually, but uh, very nice. So it was a pleasure for me. And I had no hesitation to agree to give this lecture when you invited me. So too bad it's not in person, but at least by mind and thought I'm there. Yes, and you've been describing it. It's been 30 years almost. <laughs> It's been 30 years, I'm afraid, <laughs> since I came to NC State. And uh, really, it was there when I got kind of hooked onto on this theme. You, you must know that as well. So, and from then on, I barely left it. Can I share my screen? Yes. Yeah, you should have full capabilities. Yes, okay. So I can start with my talk because I have quite some plans. Fred, can I ask you to um, give me a little sign when I hit like 20, 22 minutes? It is probably around 30 minutes I'll give you. So if I'm 
way behind at 20 minutes. I have to cut things short. <laughs> I don't hear you, but I guess you understood me. <laughs> All right. So um, let me get started. Uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a perspective piece that really is fed. And, and, and I share my, my 30 years of experience on both sides of the Atlantic and all over the world. But the focus will be uh, on Europe, OK? And now, let me see. Oh, this is how it works. So but the story really begins already earlier. 40 years and 50 years ago, because it's important for, for me and my, my storyline to see why that, that the debate and the discourse I'm going to talk about, the tone of the discourse really already started uh, in the 70s, right after these biochemical processes and the protocols were developed that allowed to manipulate um, DNA in, in organisms. My phone is ringing and that is a problem. Okay. Um, because the way they started with it was right with really big, big, big promises, you know, revolutionize just about anything, save the world, meet the fundamental needs of medicine, agriculture, and there was no doubt about it. And just pretty similar was the, the safety narrative as well. It wasn't gonna be talked about much. Trust us, um, we know what we're doing. And it was also right from the get-go about power and dominance and business concepts. So if you want to go, this is always a nice thing. I, I always recommend this if people want to know how it started and where we came from. These are really interesting pieces in the New York Times Magazine and New York Times 40 years ago from now, what the promises were, what the scope was and what was predicted, what would be happening. And that lasted on and you'll see later on that it, it still continues. So the first point I kind of um, missing is also to this day that there is hardly any critical, self-critical or critical reflection in the field of biotechnology to go over the books and do a little bit of reminiscence and say, what did we think where we would be today and where are we today? And that's a big part of why the discourse um, was shaped in Europe differently and took off on a different footing than it did in the United States. So here in Europe, the focus was always much more about risk and regulations, but less about the business opportunities and the potentials of it. And that can be explained if you look at the history at that time where we were with all the movements, the peace movements and green movements and also the women's liberation movements in Europe. So this is a little thing that happened in my country. So this is a chronology of the resistance, the resistance, and that is how people perceived it. They perceived that they are in a resistance struggle um, against biotechnology and all the, the accompanying things that came along with it. This particular organization exists still today. It has a different name today, but its focus was the patents. The patent issue, the control issue, the power issue is really what, what structured their thinking and their contribution to the debate. And funnily, I found it was kind of interesting for me to go really into those archives and look at it. When it came to the public debate in Switzerland in the mid eighties, when I found the first kind of document about it, it was squarely embedded um, in the women's liberation movement. And it was a potential that could, you know, these technologies could exert on, on the woman's body, 
on the control of a woman's body. It was the times when women had really to fight for, for emancipation and for, for control over their lives. Remember in the mid eighties, uh, Swiss women only got uh, the right to, to, to vote at a federal level in the late seventies, mid late seventies. So that's, that's where was themes of eugenics. So that's where, where that part came from, uh, that debate came from in, in this part of the world. In the nineties then it was also in France, it was more about the food issue. Malbof was one of those terms that this gentleman here, Jose Beauvais, has coined very famously in the French debate about GMOs in the 90s. And as the French are quite combative as they are and no, no diplomacy involved, <laughs> they created a movement and they called themselves the Reapers. And they liberated the fields of the Malbof, what they considered junk food. So. It was clear then in the late 80s and early 90s that if you were, if gene technology and its application and business models were going to fly in Europe, it would have to be regulated. And there would have to be a trusted process and trusted procedures by people in order to get their acceptance that this is something they should, should look into or should consider. So this is just a brief overview. You don't have to understand all of this. All I want to show you here is that it started in the, in the, in the 80s, early mid 80s, but these were just proposals and recommendations and, and yeah, nothing, no law that said. The first moment when we saw uh, laws being implemented and uh, that ruled and regulated how you could do research and how you could do field releases or how a procedure could happen in order to release them for cultivation and market approval. That was in 1919, the first one, and then the final one in 2001 that is still valid today. Parallel to this was the European unification process. So also that was in parallel processes that went along, you had to have agreements among several European countries. So it wasn't enough just to convince Germany or convince France, it had to be across board in Europe. And the unification process really took place in 1993. It started, became a common market, and then later on the Maastricht treaties uh, unified or it created the union that it is today. So those laws had to be adapted then to that process again because they were designed for different uh, legal statuses of the nation. So this now had to be uh, redesigned and modified to become then the 2001-18 directive that is still valid today. The discourse in the 90s, and that's when I entered, like the mid 90s is when I started to join. Uh, I, I was part of the discourse. I heard my, all my friends and colleagues worked with transgenic BT crops in those days for resistance issues. And I was a non-target person who worked with BT on uh, sprays on non-target organisms. So it was kind of natural for me to ask that question, what would happen if there would be BT plants all over the place to, to those critters that I had been studying with, with the sprays? Because I understood clearly then that there is differences between what is sprayed on them and between what's expressed in the plant. So and sure enough, there wasn't any, any research done. So I started to uh, get money for myself. And with that money, I returned and started my own research program and my own research group there. And the discourse was about food, 
health and environmental impacts in those days, really. There was ethicals as well and religious, but they never really got much traction. Ethics did, but religious concerns were in niche parts of the segments of the societies, but not, not a broad issue that, that took uh, gained traction at, as a movement or something. So for human health, there was a nutritional quality and a big concern was the antibiotic resistance that was in these crops and that we're gonna be spreading and adding to an already escalating crisis in antibiotic resistance that started in the 90s already. Potential allergenicity, carcinogenicity, et cetera, when eating those foods in the long-term, on small, on children, on the vulnerable, et cetera. Those were all the issues uh, for human health that concern people. Regarding the environment, which was my field where I did my research and, and contributed to the debate, it was the unintentional gene flow to wild weedy plants that would exacerbate weed problems or add to invasives, the genetic diversity, erosion, et cetera, unwanted effects of these new toxins that are engineered in the crops and the biodiversity and food chain effects. And this is the field where I contributed with my own research, but I'm not going, gonna go into my research, I would take along uh, another lecture basically. Resistance, evolution, et cetera, those, those were the concerns for research and for, for, the, um, for the public sector. But another one that was fairly big and that um, was different than what was happening in the United States was the issue of coexistence. Because um, as you were, as it met, the technology met a very skeptical to outright rejecting populace and, and constituency that really didn't call for these things, they had to make sure if you want to gain acceptance and trust, you had to have rules in place where people who chose not to eat this or not to be part of it could do so without being coerced or unknowingly being you know, drawn into or, or fed things that they don't want. And so consumer choice was a big thing. Labeling was right from the get-go an issue. It was clear, had to be in place. Otherwise you wouldn't get acceptance. And the organic picking up, gaining traction, organic market and organic production needed to be able to protect itself. So you needed rules how far away these uh, fields had to be who had to inform whom, and you needed a register to know um, where those fields were, where GM crops would be grown. So that's all what they started to establish and put in place. And all of it was, of course, controversial. All of it was big debates and discourses around it. So this is an image that I show you in order for you to understand that in Europe, the landscape is what we call a cultural landscape. We don't have separated areas of wilderness and wild places and then an area where you do intensive agriculture or such. For us, nature conservation areas are usually quite intimately intertwined with the used landscape and the used part. And this image shows you that. This is, this is a sign for a nature conservation area where in fact, even agricultural production is part of that conservation model. And on the other side of the road is a non, is, is an area that doesn't belong to the conservation area. And it had to make sure because it was clear that GMOs should not occur in protected areas or protected landscapes and, and plants. So you had to find a way how to make sure that this wouldn't cross out 
if those were GM crops. Notice that in the 90s, we didn't grow any GM crops at all. This was just in preparation for it. They thought so. So what happened then in parallel as well as 2001, the final directive went into force was also a parallel international process. Well, under the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, there was a, uh, the protocol on biosafety, Cartagena protocol on biosafety was uh, developed and went into effect as well in 2001. And, these both these pieces of legislation that then were the guidance for introduction of GMOs in Europe and in the world, basically. Today, um, it's rough, I think it's more than 180 countries and nations who have ratified that protocol on biosafety. Um, they had to go by uh, certain, certain guidance and, and rules. And those rules for approval included risk assessments. And we spent years and years and years on trying to define um, how those risk assessments should be look should look like and what the content of it be. So the Cartagena Protocol sets out that risk assessments have to be case by case. They have to be dependent on the intended use. So you have to assess that whether that is going to be the intended user, whether they're going to be other users. And you had to uh, do this in consideration of the respective receiving environment. And that piece of the respective receiving environment was a fairly new piece to environmental legislation, like other um, rules for pesticide release, etc. They never considered the, re the receiving environment. The European Union directive was similar. Um, they were mutually negotiated. Of course, the European Union was a big part in those negotiation processes under the international, um, in the international arena. However, the, the, the risk assessment uh, rules laid out, uh, specified a little more what types of adverse effects should be considered and included in that risk assessment. And they could be direct or indirect uh, effects, immediate or delayed or cumulative effects. So far, so good. And all of this was going to be under the um, precautionary principle for the EU or the precautionary approach as it was written under in the um, Convention on Biological Diversity and the Cartagena Protocol. Now, you can imagine that all of this was, of course, hard fought force. None of that came easy. So there were big factions and parties and stakeholders that didn't want any of this. And in, it included, for example, also the European Commission. The European Commission was like the US government and many other governments, mainly focused on the business options and, and opportunities it would offer. And they had to be kind of forced by sheer public um, um, pressure to uh, install these laws and rules and follow the, the public will. And so we got our laws um, and they kind of, they, they were okay. They're, they're still okay, basically. However, when that battlefield was closed, then the next one started. And interestingly, they then started at the level of interpretation of those laws. So they weren't about the laws anymore, what the wording would be going in. That was done and finished. But now it went, once you have them, you have to put them into ordinances, into regulation, into you know, what, what you concretely have to go by as an applicant. Uh, 
So, and there was that at that interpretation level, it was when it started really in the in the 2000s and then roughly where it got nasty a little bit. So the controversy was in essence about do you narrowly interpret those inter, uh, those those laws and rules, or do you have a more broad um, interpretation of it? And I think in our bioscience paper that got cited so much by now, um, that's a little bit where we were going into those different interpretations and how you could how you could do risk assessment with an ecological mind. And the key of that is uh, right at the start of those uh, risk assessments is where you identify in the first step, you, you formulate your problem that you want to solve and you identify the hazards that could possi possibly occur and that you want to have on your radar screen of possibilities that you then assess in the next steps of the risk assessment. So the decision on scope and depth of your risk assessment and with that comes the value and the limitation of the risk assessment was decided right at that very first step. And there was a lot of room for interpretation there. What is the stressor you want to include and you want to assess? What kinds of adverse effects do you actually want to be considering and which kinds of adverse effects are you not going to be considering? What exposure pathways are you going to include and which ones are you going to exclude? So are you only going to be looking at the plant? Are you going to be looking at the field? Are you going to be looking beyond the field? How far beyond the field at the regional level? Or where is your receiving environment ending that you consider in your assessment? And that would then inform what types of tests you would be doing and what kind of data would go into this into the approval process. Because keep in mind, risk assessment is a proactive exercise. It is something that you do to avoid harm to happen. So it is a forecasting exercise and you want to, you base your approval on this and your conditions that you might want to release with the approval. So it's nothing that you can do once you're, once you're in the production, once it's out on the market and you find problems, that's not risk assessment anymore. That's damage control, what you do. So in order to avoid that, you had to do a prospecting exercise. And there, there is room for improvement always. And you have to agree, you know, so the process is, is, is difficult. And the, the, basically these, these discussions fell on two, two sides. One was to try to construct and frame that risk assessment as narrow as possible. And it focused clearly on the knowns and the intended effects. And the broader, those who wanted to look at it at a more broad scale and a more exclusive level would build on the known and the intended, of course, but also account for the unknown and the unintended effects. In particular with living organisms, biological organisms, they tend not necessarily to do what you intend them to do and they don't ask you, they have a life of their own at some point. So that was felt to be really, really key, but it wasn't necessarily. So what it then turned out uh, is that our, our EFSA, our European Food Safety Agency, which is the one that advises the Commission, the EU Commission who makes the decision, has chosen to adopt a fairly narrow perspective, which was a favored perspective of the industry, of course, and of most applicants. And how that falls out when you do a narrow assessment versus a broad is what I'm trying to explain to you now very briefly. 
So for any benefit along the example of one of the big applications, which is the herbicide resistant plants. So for the benefits, of course, you know, that you're promoting and the companies that uh, are advertising, you look at it as a package, obviously. The benefits for, for herbicide resistant GM plants arise from the application of the corresponding herbicides, obviously. Without that, these plants are useless and have nothing, no benefit to offer. Now, you would think that that would also apply when you look at the risks, but not so. For the risks, uh, a pretty reductionistic concept, conceptual understanding is, is coming into play. It's where you unfold and open up that package that you're trying to promote and, and assess the benefits for. You open up and you divide it in little individual pieces. So one piece is the transgene product, which is typically a protein, obviously. In this case, the for Roundup Ready plants, EPSPS enzyme, an enzyme. It's the transgene that is being incorporated, and it is the um, respective herbicide, the Roundup, that has is fundamental part of that package. Now that Roundup in our regulations or that pesticides are then further split up into individual components like the active ingredient and the formulations of that active ingredient. So what you end up in the end is that for the approval process of one particular plant and it's of one package, you have three different regulations, national and EU regulations that are applying. And obviously each part is just looking at its own part and is kind of assuming that the overall risk in the end would be the sum of its parts, which they really don't have to be. So for the GM regulation, for those regulators, for our EFSA, oh yeah, and then of course we have the patented transgenes which have our own set of rules. So for, for herbicide resistant plants, in essence, what the EFSA has been reducing its assessment to is basically the enzyme and disconnected from the plant just produced by, by a microbe, a transgenic microbe for convenience reasons. So hardly any ecotox trials are done. If they are done, there are acute tox studies short term on surrogate species. And then is some feeding studies to prove that food conversion for the finishers uh, of the animal feed, um, convince them that this is just as good a food as any other. The same is happening for the Bt toxins uh, as well. They are separated conceptually from, from the plant and are assessed as individual protein. So we were never happy with that. And with us, a whole constituency that had been skeptical right from the get-go said, we want this also the risks and safety issues to be assessed from a broad perspective as the package, including the herbicide and including, for example, which is key for the herbicide resistant plants, the residues that are in the food and in the food chain and then eventually in the environment. So that is all excluded. If you just take a very narrow view of these things, you're not looking into this. You're also not covering the resistance issues uh, in the plants that are now a huge problem in the United States, as everybody knows. Quite in contrast to Bt talk, because resistance issues were on the radar screen uh, in those days that they had to be taken care of or addressed at least. 
So this didn't go down well. So that debate uh, at that level did not find any agreement. Um, so it was impossible to approve any GM plants for cultivation in Europe. There is to this very day only one approved. It's the good old Monet 10, one of the early first plants that were ever produced by Monsanto. And it is only grown to this day here in Spain at a roughly 100,000 hectare, 110,000, a little bit in Portugal, but it's, it's a few thousand hectare only. This is exclusively grown for feed for their own cattle in Spain. So it's not going into, into any export or into any human food chain. Other than that, there is nothing being grown because it never passed the threshold. It never made, got a, a majority approval by the members of parliament, be these national members of parliament or EU members of parliament. So these are, that's a map of where all there are explicit bans on Mon A10. And since it's the only one, uh, it's a de facto ban on, on GM cultivation. There was also then this movement where people at the at the local level and at the private level at the you know farm level they wanted to make sure in their communities that they're not going to start engage in producing Monet 10 all of a sudden and had common agreements private agreements that they renewed every year that they would for the time being not grow um, the approved uh, uh, maize in order to avoid all the problems with coexistence information and labeling and, and tracing, etc. So this, this situation of ground root, grassroot organizations, communities, sometimes federal states having their own agreements below the popular or below the, the political level and the law level, was something that the EU found not sustainable and wanted to change. Uh, they wanted to get control over this and have an orderly process that's not so, um, you know, different and, and ad hoc every year. So they created the next kind of piece of legislation by 2015, which was the opt-out um, regulation. So the approval process of GMOs in Europe is at the EU level, and the but they turned back to the national member level that if for other reasons than scientific or safety reasons, they felt they don't want to cultivate and grow GM crops, they could opt out. And they had to, you know, inform, and there's a procedure laid out for how to do this, but this should shut down all these uh, patchwork regulations and private agreements. And in the end, this is uh, since 2015, the situation in, in Europe that most countries have opted out. Um, as you know, meanwhile, the uh, Great Britain has also opted out of the EU, but not because of GMOs. But uh, Scotland and Ireland and Wales are staunch, uh, um, staunch critics of GM crops. So there is now, and this is now one of the hot topics in the post-Brexit British negotiations and part of what drives also the critics in Scotland mainly to try to seek independence is because they are still staunch opponents and they do not share um, the England's, England's position on this. So it remains that Spain is the, the basically the only country that grows it. 
another game changer then happened really um, was by 2000, in 2015 when the International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, declared Roundup um, the most widely used herbicide um, of the world as a probable carcinogen in humans. It had been understood based on what the debate that has been going on on the really reductionistic way of looking at, at the risk assessment that all the, the feed that is coming into Europe is highly contaminated and has high uh, concentrations of the residues of glyphosate and its metabolites because of all the resistance issues as well that are now everywhere where you grow Roundup Ready crops in Argentina and Brazil is made major sources of the feed that the EU imports for animal feed. And so the concern really was, and people started to test, people start to, you know, make, uh, analyze their hair and blood and whatever, and they found out that Roundup is everywhere. And that really got a massive movement going in, in Europe. In addition to, um, this is just some images of some of those um, movements and referendum was cast, etc. But this was parallel to another struggle that also happened across Europe. And this was the collapse of our biodiversity and our bees. So in parallel to the struggle to get glyphosate banned, there was a struggle to get the neonics and other insecticides banned. And people began to kind of realize more and more there is something fundamentally wrong in the system. And you couldn't be possibly fighting this anymore one pesticide at a time. You had to have something like system change or address this at a, at a system level. This is just, you know, since 2018, the European Food Safety Agency was basically forced to ban three neonicotinoids. But the debate then shifted from a, away from a technic, technological centered or a pesticide by pesticide centered or chemical by chemical centered kind of debate to taking on the broader view and understand that all of these things, climate change, biochemical flows, freshwater use, land system and biodiversity collapse are all interlinked. And they are all part and parcel. What we're seeing here are symptoms of a system problem. And behind all of these is the industrialized form of agriculture as a major driver and simultaneously as a victim of these things as well. So it is getting more and more clear that agriculture will have to go undergo a, a, a transformation and we have to shift way more than just ban a pesticide and then comes another one and then ban that again and then comes another one, et cetera. But that the system has to be transformed, really. So since a number of years now, then the, the years that are here are all mid-2000, starting 2013, 14, 15, 16, what is really, this, this transformation agenda is really gaining traction here in Europe. So this is IPES a international panel of experts that are calling for shift from uniformity to diversity. Um, there is a UN Special Rapporteur on Right to Food, Olivier de Schutter, he's a Belgium 
um, had called for a shift of transformation and the concept that gains traction within the transformation debate is the concept of agroecology. So the whole agroecology is, is, is an old uh, invention basically by a colleague of ours, uh, Miguel Altieri and his friends and the Via Campesina movement uh, long, long, long ago. And it has gained now 20, 30 years later after it was introduced through the debate around GM crops and the debate around um, pesticide use and the connection between the both, okay? So that's when oh, it really- that it's, it's 12.40 now, so we have about 20 minutes left for discussion, so. Okay, I'm, I'm almost finished then. The international, uh, the FAO has meanwhile picked it up as well. They have created an agenda for agroecological forms of agriculture, etc. To uh, has designed, developed um, criteria for what is agroecology and agroecological production, and the debate on GMOs is now firmly located and embedded in the politics and in the discussion around food and transformation of agriculture. So the shift from the 80s, what you saw in 90s, specifically on certain applications, has now shifted to be embedded. You see now glyphosate being part of big demonstrations that call for agriculture change. This is just from the January now, a few weeks ago. Here you see little flags that are, um, you know, the, the gene tech um, resistance flags, but they are firmly now in embedded in a debate and a struggle around transforming our agro-food system. This is just an example that just happened in parallel in England. The uh, Oxford Real Farming Conference is gathering thousands of people uh, every year now. However, what we do see now coming is that also the gene tech part has been continuing. And there is now new enzymes and new protocols uh, coming out. But what we see there is that while the debate on one side has moved on to be a debate about transforming of systems, the debate here that is launched again is a technology focused debate again around deregulation, narratives, promises, etc. So we had this uh, court justice, they were hoping that these products of the new GM technologies wouldn't be considered GMOs. Those hopes um, were squashed with the ruling of the Court of Justice at the European Union in 2018 that said these are in principle uh, GMOs and fall within the scope of directive uh, of GMOs. So the project isn't finished, it's continuing. And, but what I'd like to get across the message is that while the genetic engineers still try to pitch the discourse as a technology-centered discourse, it is met meanwhile uh, with a constituency that is discussing it in a systems fashion and how that is going to end up is up in the, up in the air, but it, is, um, it remains exciting and very, very interesting debate. Thank you, that's my input. All right, thanks a lot for all of that. Um, Dawn, do you wanna moderate the discussion? Yes, um, so we have a few minutes for people to raise their hand. I see that. Shall I stop there? Yeah, okay. Great. So please so leave your... your, I see. Great, Angelica, so we just ask people to leave questions in the chat box or to raise their hand um, if they wanna ask you a question. And I'm gonna, I see okay. that we have one student 
Fred, did you have a question before? Oh, no, 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 please. Okay, sure. So I'm gonna go and uh, unmute Eli Hornstein. Hi, um, thank Hi. you. Uh, so we had a report from our National Academy of Sciences written by Fred, um, <laughs> which used Europe as a control group um, for the, the claims that uh, GMOs had increased productivity um, over the past couple decades. Um, and they, they didn't find a big difference. Um, mm -hmm. My question is for these recent changes um, where they, they started dropping out uh, new sets of agrochemicals. Um, has mm -hmm. there been any observation of a change in productivity? Um, nothing that I heard of, but I didn't check the numbers recently. So, but I, I haven't heard anything. What I did hear though, I must say, so um, is that this year, last year, 2020, um, we had um, some, some crops, some farmers of some crops, I think it was sugar beet in, in Germany or so, and here in Switzerland, I forgot which crop it was, where farmers were saying, you must allow us, they wanted an emergency exception uh, perm permit uh, of use of one of those uh, banned products to deal with uh, certain pests that would transmit a disease or so, but I have not followed this up yet. And I could not even tell you whether they were granted the emergency permit or not. But I know that there, there were debates. Last year was all with the corona and COVID. So this was kind of, you know, not, not making headline news. But I know there were uh, some farmers were up in arms. Um, could I very briefly follow up? Um, would you say overall there is support by farmers for the idea of a shift to agroecology in Europe? Um, not by all, by no means. So the, the, the pictures I showed you are from annual uh, manifestations and demonstrates it's becoming, it has become a, a routine now in Berlin, um, where tens of thousands of people gather in January, that is always around a certain event that happens every year. And that those are, and the farmers, the tractors you saw there are usually organic farmers, are farmers who are who understand that they are with their backs against the wall with the, in the conventional field, etc. But there is, of course, the other farmers who are also up in arms, who are trying to do everything right according to the subsidy schemes of the EU, and still are running into serious problems. Um, but regardless of what technology they use because the prices are collapsing, the climate is changing, the soils are degrading, et cetera, et cetera. So um, there is, there is, yeah, there is, that's, that's the discourse right now. So it's no, by no means all farmers are happy, but there is a, a growing number of farmers um, that are understanding that there needs to be a transformation. We need to get out of the system as it is right now. Angelica, we have a question from uh, Dr. Rodolfo Barango to everyone. Uh, Angelica, what do you mean? What do you make the re recent statement by the French Minister of Ag that NBTs are not GMOs? How do people interpret this, and what may be the implications of such unequivocal statements on the discussion? That 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 is one statement of one person. <laughs> there is other people who have other takes. Right now. Um, I mean, right now they are GMOs, full stop. 
So legally, there are GMOs. That's that's the ruling of the court. And that's the law. Uh, what currently is uh, happening is the commission, well, there is an enormous push of, of lobbying, of course, at the commission level to change that law now, okay? Um, the court says if you want changes, then you have to change the law, but right now it falls under the law. So the court wasn't making any, any statements whether or not the law was good, but it was, it was asked whether it falls under the law, and the, the answer was yes, it does. So it said, if you want to change them, then change the law, and that's lawmakers' jobs. So the push is now massively from, from the applicants, the industry, and uh, et cetera, to get the commission to make those changes. The commission has commissioned a report now to a select group of experts. I don't know who they are. And they are working on a expertise to what degree and how, um, whether or not that fulfills the requirements of the EU Commission, and whether or not what could be a way of changing the regulations to accommodate those, um, those wishes or not. We don't know what's coming out. We're expecting that report in roughly April, and then we will see. Okay, thank you. We have another question here from a student, Joseph Gakpo. Do you share the widespread view that with the UK leaving EU, the UK is likely to take a more progressive approach towards GMOs and break ranks from the rest of Europe? Um, the progressive approach is not perceived as progressive in certain circles, but rather reactionary, actually. Um, I think what is happening in the UK right now is um, it's a discourse again. So as I, as I indicated, uh, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland have always been firmly um, critical and, and disapproving of it. England has been approving of it. Johnson is approving of it. He's trying now to change um, the regulations in that fashion. What the outcome will be, I really cannot tell you. It's, it's a very early process. It's just uh, we're one month into that process now. But I know there is a, is a big push that, that is happening, yes. Okay, so I'm gonna unmute John Riles. He has his hand up to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Am I unmuted? Oh, yep, we can hear you now. Yeah, but we can't see you, but I guess that's okay. <laughs> I'm not a technology guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I don't know if you know who I am, but I, I oh. Uh, actually did my postdoc at the University of Zurich in the 1980s, early 1980s with Charles Weissman. Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah, that was long before my time. <laughs> and uh, then I came to see Begeige and I worked uh, in Research Triangle Park and I, see. I was yeah. head of agricultural biotech research when we launched the world's first genetically engineered corn. Did we meet then there? I don't know. Fred was involved with us a lot. And I've been at Sibagaygi in the Research Triangle a number of times. Yeah, I left by 97. Yeah, oh, okay. And, um, but my question, you know, having been in Europe a lot, um, when that was all happening, uh, I'll give you my perspective. I mean, mad cow disease had just started about two years after I left Zurich. Mm. And it peaked in about 1990. 
you know, and was hugely changing attitudes. And, and you know, governments had lied about it. Or if they didn't lie about it, they, they certainly weren't overly anxious to talk about it. And, you know, and then you ended up with all the cows in the UK getting killed and things like that. And then on the, you know, right on the tail of that, we're trying to launch BT corn, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the, it was simple in the United States. I mean, you know, just the biggest, you know, it was the quickest ramp up of any crop ever introduced. But uh, in, in Europe, you know, just as we were doing that, Monsanto was doing that. And, uh, you know, Monsanto had a very heavy hand in Europe. And yeah. I think, you know, several personalities there, you know, really had an impact on what eventually happened. And, it, and I think a lot of it was because of their ignorance towards what had happened with BT. I mean, with so uh, BSE. Yeah, mm. Have you thought about that? Um, yes. So the, the, the BSE um, scandal, which it was, uh, certainly left a, a, um, a deep mark in, in the psyche and, and the perception of government and trust towards the government in Europe. That, that is clear. But the, um, and it didn't help the cause of the GM crops, you know, introduction of another technology that is also clear. However, um, the, this, it didn't fall on, on unprepared ground, let's put it this way. As I was indicating the, the skepticism against gene technology and, and its, its power and, and uh, the dominance, et cetera, was already going on since the 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. And that what happened with BSE was just as a confirmation of all the skepticism and the, the doubts and the attitude people had already that you can't trust governments and you can't trust companies definitely um, was reinforced, but it wasn't invented. It wasn't the first, you know, the cause of it. It fell on fertile ground and it reinforced a skepticism that was there already. Yeah. And you were right with Monsanto was heavy handed in Europe. I know those people as well. <laughs> and um, I think they didn't do themselves a service there. Yeah. But uh, I, I think the, the nobody did themselves a service when starting, you know, and that, that's a little bit what, what, why I'm a bit concerned or I'm, I'm irritated now to see that the same recipe in the discourse is, is hitting again. These, these hyped promises of where every reasonable scientists would say, hold it, you know, that's, that's not going to happen, not in any foreseeable future. Um, they're coming again and again, and you know exactly it's exaggerated, you know, it, it, this is not trust building of saying we save the world with point mutations. People are not willing to buy that anymore. And what is more astounding now is even that they're that they're not realizing or understanding that that discourse in, in, those, in the population has moved to a different place. Yeah. They're still coming with the same old recipes. So that, that's a bit astonishing to me. And I have, Can I don't- I add one more thing? Sure. So the, I, I mean, I thought your talk was great. I'm just trying to fill in a little bit of the, before that all happened, what was Europe like? You know, and, and the other thing that I think was a big uh, influence 
was how quick Greenpeace had moved into this thing. And all of a sudden it was Greenpeace. And I knew Ben Harland and Ben was the guy that was the you know, staunch driver for Greenpeace. And I asked him one time, you know, why was he doing this? You know, did he have a farming background or whatever? And he said, no, he's doing it for the money. And he had been a early Greenpeace. This was Ben Harland. And he, he was head of, head of that unit of Greenpeace back then. And uh, he had been an original green guy and had mm -hmm. served time in prison. And while he was in prison, he thought about what would be something that he could really latch on to to cause, you know, havoc and make money. And I didn't have much respect for Ben. But anyway, that yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you could, I mean, it'd be wonderful to talk to you about the old days. <laughs> this, is, this is what we cannot do in this virtual meeting space, unfortunately. That's the privilege when meeting in person. Yes. Fred, you could get my email or something and we could have a call. Hmm. Okay, great. We can yeah. pass that over. Angelica, I, I took this as a as a statement. Now I'm not I'm not going to comment. I think you mean Benny Benny Herlin, right? Um, the only thing is the role of Greenpeace is is uh, yes, the role of Greenpeace was in the 90s important, but they they dropped actually out of that debate pretty in the 2000s already, and haven't been really in this a a key driver uh, anymore. So it it was it has moved to different circles and different movements um, and they kept being bashed for their role although they had really uh, um, scaled back quite quite significantly today greenpeace is not uh, a driver in this really anymore yeah. marginally but in those days in the 90s yes they were thank you john thank you angelica we have about four minutes left and we have a number of questions here i want to try to get out for you. One is from Jabin Ahmad, who says, a lot of debate on GMOs focuses on glyphosate and BT, GMOs created to address pests and disease. Is mm -hmm. the discourse in Europe different with something like golden rice, a crop to address malnutrition and human health? Um, the dis well, you know, golden rice, I must say now, um, the discourse today uh, golden rice is, is as, a, as an issue to debate is, is out. You know, the, it's it's old, it's from the 90s. Most people, I, I think the young people here today wouldn't even know necessarily what it is anymore. And the, the discourse now, and that's a funny thing. So with the new technologies that are now having, pushing a new round of discussion, they're not, they're not addressing the old GMOs anymore. In fact, they're trying to, to kind of divert the attention away from them and say, well, that was that, that was then. Now we're gonna be delivering. Now we're gonna be, now we're gonna be doing the things that we had kind of promised already. And this that we had kind of promised and didn't deliver is sort of implicit. It's never said explicitly. But it's not, there is the debate is like for the new young people that I teach, they it's like we just began that debate. It's it hasn't had a history, it's it's new. And that is kind of the, the narrative we find. They're not addressing, not making reference to the old GMOs. Um, my take is largely because they don't wanna answer the questions why they never really left the two trades and had anything else to offer based on 
the promises that had been made. And they are admitting and saying those old GMOs were, you know, they had problems. And now we're solving those problems with the new techniques. We're more precise, we're safer, da da da. So that that's an interesting thing, but I cannot really answer. You know, it's it's my observation that that's what it is. Uh, but I can only guess and have an opinion why that is. But they're not addressing the old GMOs are not part of the new debate we're seeing. And the the young people, the new that that are you know twenties plus or something now, they have no recollection about them anymore because it was banned. Certainly here in Switzerland, they, they some of them might not even know what GMOs are anymore. That's 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 a consequence when you ban something. <laughs> it gets out of the debate, and people feel like ah, that's a non-issue. We don't need to think about it. <laughs> so it's cooking up now again with the new technologies, but it's like. A, a second round, you know, it's not making reference and not connecting to the previous one. And that's intentional, but you know, why that is, you can speculate. Thank you. We have a quick uh, from Kevin Pixley. I doubt anyone is against a mo uh, move towards safe operating space and transforming agriculture towards agroecological sustainability. Can they, why can't NBTs be seen as contributing to this move? Uh, uh, that's a that's quite a long, long lesson and lecture. <laughs> why it wouldn't, why it wouldn't fit? Um, it's not a sustainable technology. You know, it quickly loses its if efficacy if you don't uh, take certain precautions and if you don't add a lot of them in there, etc. Fred would be the one who could tell you what it takes to to grow sustainably um, BT crops. And the idea that the bacterial toxins are in those plants uh, in fairly high amounts or a multiple of them is, is nothing that resonates really well and is not considered a viable uh, solution or addressing the problems that, that we have. Thank you. I'm afraid that we've actually run out of time. So I would like to thank you very much for your presentation and talk today and um, spending time at the GES seminar. Thank you very much, Angelica. You all, thank you for listening. I'm available if you want to discuss this any further. Right. We'll I'm make your uh, email available to people. We definitely have a lot more stuff in the chat here. So Okay, good. I don't, do I see that? No, I don't see the chat, huh? I can send you the I can send you all the questions in the chat. Good. Great. All right. All right. Thanks everybody. Was a pleasure.